0: Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we're doing something a little different. You may know that Meet Cute Bookshop has an ongoing Romance for Reproductive Justice initiative, and as part of that, we are running our second annual auction benefiting abortion funds on June 10th and 11th. We get asked all the time why we, a bookstore focusing on genre romance, are running an auction to raise money for abortion funds, which is a very reasonable thing to wonder. What I tell people is this. Romance, as a genre, is many things to many people. Historically, it is a genre written predominantly by women and about women, particularly white women of a certain class. More recently, it's been an expanding tent, telling stories by and about an increasingly diverse array of people, which is a development that took too long to begin and has a ways to go yet. But one thing that it has always been and continues to be for me is a place to find stories in which the main characters have or gain agency over their lives and their loves and, most relevant to this conversation, their bodies. The romance community at large, or Romancelandia, as a community it contains multitudes. But one thing we have excelled at is banding together around a cause, giving our time, energy, and resources to something that matters to us, or at least to a whole lot of us. There have been Romancelandia auctions to raise money for victims of natural disasters and support organizations fighting voter suppression. So last year, when the draft of the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson leaked, I, one of the many ex-lawyers in Romancelandia, channeled my fury into organizing the Romance for Reproductive Justice auction. I thought maybe we'd raise $10,000, and we raised fifty. dollars I would love to never have to run this auction again to be able to move on to finding ways to join different fights on different fronts. But unfortunately, reproductive rights are still under attack in the U.S., so we are back again with a second annual Romance for Reproductive Justice auction. Winning bids will again go to the National Network of Abortion Fund's Collective Power Fund, which is a mouthful. Um, But the Collective Power Fund makes grants to local abortion funds that boost their cash on hand, giving them Greater opportunities to provide support for things like the cost of an abortion, transportation to a clinic, childcare, lodging, and abortion doula support. Abortions are critical healthcare, life saving healthcare, and they should be accessible to everyone, not only to people who happen to live in the right places or have the means and flexibility to travel. I am furious about this and I want to find a way to do something, and I know other people feel the same way. I also used to work in the nonprofit world, and my experience there led me to believe that the best way to be involved in a fight where I have no real expertise, no firsthand knowledge of the -the on-the-ground reality, is to support the people who do. Folks are organizing, have been organizing, around reproductive justice issues and specifically around abortion access for a long time. What they need from us, other than our votes and our voices, is honestly some cold hard cash this auction is the best way that I can think of to get them some. So as part of the run-up to the Romance for Reproductive Justice auction, this episode won't be a chat with an author, an editor, an artist, but instead with two lawyers and one doctor who are currently in the reproductive rights trenches talking about their work and why abortion funds are more important than ever. I also feel like I've invented a fun little riddle because even though I'm chatting with two lawyers and one doctor, I only have two guests today. How is that possible? Here's a little bit about them. Allison Tanner is Senior Litigation Counsel for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. She focuses on litigation to promote health equity and access to reproductive health care. Before joining NWLC, Allison was a staff law clerk with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Previously, she was the Stephen Gay Constitutional Litigation Fellow at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Allison graduated magna cum laude from the Georgetown University Law Center, where I also went and we have mutual friends. Small world. Kimmy Chernaby is Counsel for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. She is also a clinical instructor of emergency medicine at the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Kimmy was the first graduate of the University of Florida's MDJD program and previously served as a health policy fellow for the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. As a resident physician in Indiana, she helped pregnant minors obtain the right to consent to their own medical care, including postpartum contraception. Her work focuses on increasing access to contraception at the state and federal level, specifically using clinical experience to advance policies that center the needs of patients. Also, her sister works in publishing as a romance editor. And now that we've solved the riddle and you're feeling significantly worse about your own personal accomplishments— through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Allison Tanner and Kimmy Chernaby. Thank you both so much for joining me. I am so excited to get to talk to you both about all the work that you're doing. Kimmy, could you just give us a little bit of background? Like, how did we get where we are? What is the state of things today? What even is going on in the world of abortion right now?
1: Yeah. So prior to last year, we had a constitutionally protected right to abortion that was first recognized in Roe v. Wade. And there were lawsuits after that. There were Supreme Court cases after that that reaffirmed that. And so that meant that whatever state you lived in, you still had a right to abortion because the federal constitution said so. And interestingly, that right actually stems from a prior case that recognized the right to birth control. And that case was called Griswold. So what happened last year was that there was a state that passed an abortion ban that was at 15 weeks, and that was not in compliance with the holding under row, right? So under row, you had a right to abortion up to the point of viability. And now the state is passing an abortion ban prior to viability. And so that would violate your constitutional right. And so that means that that went to the Supreme Court and gave the Supreme Court the opportunity to revisit their prior opinion in Roe. And normally the Supreme Court will respect its prior decisions. But in this case, they decided to revisit their opinion and said, you know, we got it wrong. And actually, we think that this right to privacy does not include the right to abortion. And if there's not a right at the federal level, then that means that it goes back to states and states can decide what they want as it relates to the right to abortion. And so that's why ever since the Dobbs decision in June of 2022, you have seen the proliferation of state abortion bans and bans that differ state by state.
0: So basically every state now has control over its own abortion rights or lack thereof. And so every person in the United States doesn't have the same right to access abortion care. It depends on where you live.
1: Yeah. And some states have done great things like codify the right to abortion in their own state constitution. So they've said, well, if the federal government isn't going to protect it, then we're going to protect it. But unfortunately, that is far and few between. And what we've seen more often is that states are taking the opportunity to ban access to abortion.
2: And I'll jump in here to say that, you know, even before this the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, where you live did have a big impact on how you could access abortion care things like whether there was an abortion provider near you or whether or you could get there and whether you could get child care whether you know all of these factors lined up whether there was medicaid coverage in your state for abortion or not all of those things would impact someone's access to care but what we are seeing now is just the hurdles are becoming that much bigger, that much more insurmountable. And before Dobbs, there was at least one abortion provider in every single state, but now we are seeing multiple states where there is literally no one able to provide abortion care except in perhaps the most limited of circumstances.
0: One of the things that I have read in the news is happening, and Allison, I think you have some more firsthand experience with this, is that in states where abortion is not legal, people who are having miscarriages or otherwise need emergency abortion care are having really terrifying experiences accessing life-saving medical treatment. And part of that is because doctors are not able in these places to make decisions about their patient's care without consulting a team of lawyers, which is not a position I would ever want to be in as a lawyer or the doctor or the patient. Can you talk a little bit more about about that?
2: Yeah, this is, you know, the problem with banning a medical procedure even when uh, lawmakers try to create exceptions, it is simply impossible to create exceptions that will come up with every circumstance in which someone will need to access abortion care um, in an emergency situation, and especially when it requires doctors, hospital administrators, general counsels to be making those decisions when it is life or death or about whether or not someone will be able to keep their uterus. And so that is what we've been seeing, uh, what I'm sure many of your listeners have been seeing as well in the news all over the country. And we actually have been representing um, someone who is denied emergency abortion care uh, by two hospitals. Her name is Melissa Farmer. And at the time, she was living in Missouri. And she was about 18 weeks into her pregnancy when her water broke. She experienced uh, what's called P-Prom, um, pre-viable, pre-term. Um, actually, Kimmy, the doctor, why don't you help me out with what the rest <laughs> of the prom means?
1: <laughs> yeah, she had pre-term, premature rupture of membranes.
2: Thank you. Those membranes. Yes. Um, and so that means that she um, she lost her pregnancy, but she hadn't completed the miscarriage um, and her cervix was still dilated. i I'm just a fake doctor here. Um, and so she went to her local hospital um, and was told by her doctors that she was at risk of developing sepsis or hemorrhaging um, and that she could lose her uterus or lose her life. But based on their interpretation of the state of Missouri's abortion ban, they felt that they couldn't provide her with the care that she needed, which they determined was an abortion unless and until she actually started hemorrhaging or actually developed that infection. And her doctors told her, you should leave the state. That's basically what they advised her to do. Um, And so she and her partner started calling hospitals all around the Midwest to try to find a place to go. And they ended up traveling across the state lines to the University of Kansas uh, health system And just as luck would have it, it was the night of the vote in Kansas for their ballot initiative on whether or not abortion would remain. Constitutional under the state's constitution. So there, a um, the state supreme court had ruled back in the 90s that the state constitution protected the right to abortion, and there was a ballot initiative up. And so she arrived at the University of Kansas Medical Center, and the doctors there determined the same thing that she was experiencing peprom Her pregnancy was no longer viable. She was at risk. She needed an abortion, and they again refused, this time saying that it was just too politically hot to provide the care that she needed. And so devastated, faced again with um, knowing that her life was at risk and that no one would help her, uh, she returned to the hospital in her home community for observation until finally she was able to get in touch with a provider in Southern Illinois She then had to drive many hours uh, to get across those state lines. And it wasn't until, let's see, a total of, I think it was about four days after her water broke that she was able to get the care that she needed. And, you know, I just want to emphasize that not only was that experience incredibly traumatic for her, um, you know, knowing that her life was at risk and having lost her daughter as well, Um, during that. But also it was completely devastating financially um, for her and her boyfriend. Her boyfriend lost his job because of the amount of time he had to take off work to um, come with her to and from the various hospitals that refused to treat her. Uh, The amount of time that she had to take off work uh, was equivalent to one pay period's uh, worth of pay. And then after she went public with her story Um, She ended up feeling so ostracized by her local community that they ended up moving, actually, and leaving the state of Missouri. That is incredibly harrowing and brave of
0: Melissa to go public with that story. And I think that's something that people don't often think about when they're thinking about abortion care. The way that this patchwork of laws can really affect people's access on a financial level and as well as a geographic level. And that is something that predates Dobbs, as you were mentioning before. um, And that's why abortion funds predate Dobbs. I wanted to talk a little bit about the ways that you've worked with abortion funds or seen them help your clients and your patients. What are some of the scenarios where you've been able to refer someone to or connect someone with an abortion fund who needed one, and how was that helpful to
2: them? I'll say that an abortion fund saved Melissa's life. That is how she was able to access the care that she needed in Illinois, was that she was able to get in contact with an abortion fund. Um, In her case, it was the Midwest Access Coalition, and they were you know, not openly able to help her pay for the abortion care that she needed, which is not something that she could have afforded to pay for out of pocket on her own. They also were able to help her with paying for the transportation to get there. And additionally, just able to help her with navigating the really complex, healthcare system that now exists, uh, figuring out where you can get the care, who provides care up to a certain gestational limit, and who has availability when, and helping, you know, communicate directly with doctors about someone's status and the emergent nature of their health needs. And so the work that many abortion funds are doing and, you know, I'll just shout out in particular the ones in the Midwest, um, Midwest Access Coalition, and also the Chicago Abortion Access Fund has set up a really amazing um, coalition with um, the hospitals in Chicago to facilitate um, hospital based abortion care. The work that they are doing is essential and, in some situations, life saving. That's such an
0: additionally important point, which is that they are local knowledge bases because especially in a time when everything is changing so quickly and differs so dramatically from state to state and even county to county for somebody trying to navigate that who isn't an expert in abortion care they just need medical attention it's it, an abortion fund can also be sort of the holder of this knowledge how do you even know where to go or who to call that's like that's the first thing and in, in this emergent panicky situation I can't even imagine how much of a relief it would be to be able to find somebody who knows what's going on. And then Kimmy, I know you in your free time when you're not being a lawyer, um, you are also a doctor because medical school is like a fun hobby that some people do. So you have experience with this and with referring not only clients, but patients to abortion funds. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that working on on the ground?
1: Yeah. So I'm an emergency medicine physician. And one of my favorite things about the ED is that there's this law called Intala, which says that we will take care of any patients any time of day with any complaint, regardless of their ability to pay. But that's not true of medical care outside of the emergency department. And so it becomes really hard when you're referring patients out. And so it's not an uncommon story. You know, I have a patient who comes in for abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, and I make a diagnosis of a pregnancy that was unexpected. And they tell me like, I don't want to be pregnant and I want an abortion, but I can't afford an abortion. Like, what am I going to do? Um, Because for various reasons, we can't prescribe medication abortions in the emergency department and don't provide those services routinely in non-emergent situations. And so it's such a great asset to be able to tell them, look, like you, it's okay. You know, there are these abortion funds, and that I can refer you to these abortion funds, and that you know, even though you'll be outside of the emergency department, you will still be able to get the care that you need, regardless of your ability to pay. And not only, you know, will they help with the funds, but like Allison said, they will help you figure out where to go. Like. I don't, you know, a lot of these patients travel to our emergency department from other places, and I don't know, you know, which clinic might be closest to them, but by referring them to their local abortion fund, they can get hooked up with the resources that best fit those needs. And I saw the same back when I was in medical school doing my training and working at abortion clinics, patients would come in and they would come in looking for abortion services. And then they would say, you know, I don't have the money to pay for this. And it was never an issue because we never had to turn patients away because we worked with abortion funds and could always get their care covered.
0: I can only imagine I used to do immigration law, which is unrelated, except that it's one of those things where like you have an expertise, right? Like you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, and the people you're working with have lots of needs that are not things that you can directly help with. So to be able to refer someone out to have that resource, not only as a person needing abortion care, but as a doctor, as a lawyer What an amazing resource to be able to connect people with so that you're not leaving your clients or your patients in a really untenable situation.
2: Yeah, 100%. I wanted to say, because Kimmy mentioned MTALA, that I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we filed a complaint on Melissa Farmer's behalf under MTALA with the federal government. And on May 1st, they announced that the two hospitals did violate MTALA by refusing to provide her with abortion care. And so those enforcement actions were the first time since Dobbs that the federal government has used EMTALA to enforce someone's right to emergency abortion care, and it was really exciting when you know Melissa told us that it felt like the first time that someone with authority told her that what happened to her was wrong. And so we're we're continuing to work to fight for justice for Melissa and for other folks who have experienced emergency denials of care. But Antala is a really important protection. That's incredible! Congratulations.
0: And I mean, hopefully, right, what you hope to see with that sort of enforcement action is that right? It obviously didn't help Melissa in the moment. But if hospitals and doctors and the lawyers at the hospitals are on notice that people are paying attention, it is possible to violate EMTALA and subsequently get in trouble, that maybe people will think a little bit
2: harder about the decisions they're making. So the two hospitals there at the University of Kansas Hospital, as well as this uh, local hospital in Missouri, both agreed to change their policies. And so in the future, they will provide abortion care to people like Melissa. And then additionally, the U.S. Uh, Secretary for Health and Human Services sent a letter to every hospital in the country, informing them of this enforcement action, which we are really hopeful will cause hospitals throughout the country to change their policies and provide abortion care in these situations as well.
0: That's incredible. Is that the sort of thing not to be a downer? I'm so sorry. Is that the sort of thing that's really dependent on the administration?
2: EMTALA was enacted in the 1980s, passed by a bipartisan Congress, signed by Ronald Reagan. Um, and so it's been around for a long time. And it has long required every hospital that accepts Medicare funds to provide emergency treatment to folks who come to their emergency departments, Uh It requires them to provide stabilizing treatment. And so for folks who are experiencing pregnancy complications, like a uh, miscarriage that's not complete or like an ectopic pregnancy, the stabilizing treatment that's necessary is an abortion. And what is new here, what is unprecedented is the public health crisis caused by Dobbs. So I think that it is something that shouldn't change. Administration, administration, Uh, the legal requirements are clear. That's my position. Kimmy,
0: in addition to being a doctor, you're a lawyer, and your litigation portfolio focuses on birth control, which, you know, reading news reports around the Dobbs decision last year and just sort of ongoing, there's been a lot of conversation about what is next on the agenda of the people and organizations who, for decades, have been trying and trying to get the federal right to abortion overturned. And one of those things is birth control. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening on the legal side right now and what people are sort of gearing up for and preparing for going forward?
1: Yeah. So the court in Dobbs reported to not be coming for birth control. And they said nothing in this opinion affects the right to birth control, But we all know that is not true, right? And so there was concurrence that clearly delineated how the opinion could affect birth control. The dissent clearly explains how birth control is at risk. And we know that it's just, like you said, it's on the agenda, right? That's what the antis are coming for next. Um, Students for Life, they have even publicly said, like, we are out to ban essentially all hormonal birth control. And the reason is they keep advancing this false narrative that birth control causes abortions, right? It's not true. Birth control is birth control. And works before you are pregnant and does not cause abortion, but they love to conflate the two. And the problem is birth control is super popular. So it's really hard to ban. Everyone loves birth control. It's like 99% of all people who are have been sexually active have used birth control across religious, you know, lines. And so it's hard to just attack birth control on its face. And so they like to conflate it with abortion to make it easier to stigmatize. And so things we see are like laws that try to conflate, you know, IUDs or plan B. For example, there was one state attorney general who recently said, we're not going to pay for plan B for victims of sexual assault anymore, because we're examining like how we handle paying for abortions after sexual assault. And it's like, okay, well, plan B is not an abortion. And plan B is in fact, standard of care for patients who are victims of sexual assault. And it's absurd to be denying patients access to birth control. So, yes, the attacks are out there. They are on TikTok. They are on Instagram. They are in courts. They are in like legislative houses. There was a case in Texas recently where a father challenged a requirement under a federal law that minors could get birth control without their parents knowing and said, like, you know, Impeded his ability to raise his children in Texas under his, in his Christian home, because they might possibly ever try to get birth control without him knowing. And the judge said, yes, in Texas. So that, you know, that case is currently being litigated. Um, But it's not all bad news, right? Like there's also good news about birth control. There is still a constitutional right to birth control. And the Affordable Care Act made it such that most insurance plans have to cover birth control with no cost sharing. So that means most people can get birth control without paying anything out of pocket. Recently, those guidelines were updated. Now they actually include external condoms, um, also known as male condoms. So like, that's really cool, right? Like you can go to your doctor, get a prescription for condoms and go to the pharmacy and get them for free or birth control pills or patches or IUDs or whatever else you might want. And there's really cool things happening at the state level too, right? So states are doing things like allowing pharmacists to prescribe birth control so that you no longer have to go to a physician. You can just walk into your local pharmacy and the pharmacist can dispense the birth control after writing your prescription. Or that pharmacies can dispense 12 months at once. So it used to be you'd have to go every three months to get your pills. And if you didn't make it one month or you forgot, then you were behind on your pills. And then suddenly you might find yourself pregnant. Whereas now you can just go in once a year and get all 12 months at once and save yourself the time and effort. So there are good things happening. For people. That is very
0: heartening and uplifting. Thank you. You're welcome. For pulling me out of my <laughs> constant <laughs> doom spiral. Speaking of being pulled out of a constant doom spiral, romance novels. We're gonna we're gonna take a sharp left turn, Kimmy. Your sister is an editor. Allison, you also love to read. So let's let's talk about books for a minute. What are some of your like all time favorite romance novels?
2: Actually, Kimmy is the one who got me into romance novels, um, and I am so appreciative. Uh, <laughs> being a reproductive rights attorney is hard. It has been particularly hard in this current era. And so romance novels, I think, have been incredibly great. Of the ones that I've read so far, I have enjoyed the League of Extraordinary Gentlewomen series. And then also there was the one where half of everyone were porn stars. The roommate. I was gonna say, yep. <laughs> and then there was, and then there was the sequel to that where there was also a rabbi, which I loved.
0: The intimacy experiment by Rosie Dannon. Okay. Um, so League of Extraordinary Women is like fun, feminist, historical romance, which is a great subgenre. Um, have you read any Sarah McLean? I feel like that's where you want to go next. So her current series is has two books out. The third one's coming out in August bombshell is the first one and then heartbreaker is Kimmy gonna find it on her bookshelf? I I
1: had it on my bookshelf (laughs) I must have just like given it away it was hot pink
0: and it's like Victorian girl gang so fun and like nobody takes any shit from anyone and it's just delightful like Sarah McLean's like whole uh, any book by her I think you'd really enjoy and she's been writing for like 10 years now so there's there's lots to lots to dig into Kimmy, what are some of your favorites? And I don't want to like, you can pick books your sister edited or not. I don't want to get you in trouble with the family (laughs)
1: chat. She will not be offended. No, I will say that I do have a soft spot for the roommate because I was actually the first book the first romance book I ever read, I was visiting her in New York and sh- it had just been published. And so she handed me her copy of it and was like, oh, I just published this book. Um, and I read it in two days and I was like, oh my God, this is what you do. No wonder you love your job, right? Like I could read these all day too. <laughs> and so that's what got me started. And so I have a soft spot for it. And it's also the book I recommend to everyone who is new to romance books, which is why Allison was given that recommendation. It's a, maybe a little spicy for an intro, but anyways, it's still the recommendation I make to everyone. But I really love the Bromance series and the Bergman Brothers series, both of them. I just love a lot.
0: Classics, yeah. Classics of the genre. The Bergman Brothers just got picked up by Penguin, I think. By my sister. By your sister, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I read it before it was hers, okay? <laughs> you were an early adopter. Yes. You were actually the influencer in this situation.
1: <laughs> Allison, those are next on your reading list. I read them down. <laughs> Do you
0: have like comfort reads or comfort watches that you like go back to again and again, when you're just having like a rough
1: reproductive justice day? I would say my comfort read is actually probably Pride and Prejudice. It's the book that I've read the most times in my life, for sure.
0: Me too. It's actually, so the book, but also the 1995 BBC version of it. I think I watched like every few months all through law school.
1: Kira Knightley's version is the one that I've watched the most. I'll allow it. It is now a Tiny bit of a
2: problematic fave, but I am a Buffy the Vampire Slayer girly. And I actually feel like, yeah, there's some great romances in there for sure. And what I really like about it is there is this line from the final episode with... um, Buffy talking to Angel who problematic lady, is this 200 year old who started dating a 16 year old but like cool cool and um she's ta- telling him about why she's not ready to settle down and she says, I'm cookie dough I'm just not done baking Chef's kiss really good line and I also think it's really great at sort of encompassing how like you can have really important relationships that don't have to be the final relationship of your life that ends in marriage and kids. And so I love an empowering female show. And you have to
0: leave room for your vampire ex-boyfriend to have a spinoff. Yes, indeed. I will just say for the record that my position on age gaps in vampire romances is that they don't count. You give me an age gap where like someone's like 20 and the other person's like 50 and I'm like, eh. but if it's 20 and a vampire, I'm like, I see no problems.
2: I hear that. Also, there's just been a series of like really terrible interviews with Joss Whedon. Yeah. yeah, no, he is
0: a problematic cave. I fully forgot that he did Buffy. I just, I think I've just like blocked him out of
2: my <laughs> mental face. Unfortunately, I have a Joss Whedon related tattoo, so I cannot.
0: <laughs> Wait, but okay. Have you watched Firefly?
2: That is what my tattoo is from.
0: Yeah. Okay. There is a book <laughs> that you should read. That we stalk in our like romance adjacent section, but it's like chef's kiss long way to a small angry planet by Becky Chambers. Just writing that down. <laughs> You're going to really like that one, I think. Kimmy, are you looking for any books in particular or like a read-alike for something that you
1: love? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, so I just finished Happy Place which was good. Um, I will say it has, we did not talk about birth control in romance novels, but it's such a huge thing. Um, And it had one of my favorite birth control in romance tropes, which is the, I need condoms. I don't have condoms. I'm going to like pine for you while I go find condoms. I love that. Um, also shout out to safe Sex because STI rates are on the rise. Syphilis is the highest it's been in 70 years. And I hate when they're just like, oh, I could got tested last week and I'm on the pill and I'm like, okay, but like, that's not real light anyways. So shout out to happy place for the condoms, but could use something probably like a little more spicy for my next read.
0: Okay. Spicy. And like, we want to live in the world of contemporary romance. I mean, whatever. So there's a new book called the nanny.
1: Oh, You know, I was about to listen to that next and it sounds like I should definitely listen to that next.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like that's probably for you. It's very spicy. It's contemporary. It's fun. Um, also set in San Diego. So like people love like a set in San Diego book. So that's, that's probably
1: where you want to go. I'm going to start it today. I'm very excited.
0: I look, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. I could not hack it as a public interest attorney. So I have so much respect for the fact that you are both still doing this work. And I really hope that romance novels are giving you like a nice mental break so that you are taking care of yourselves. Please let me know if I can ever be of any assistance with a recommendation. It would be my pleasure. Thank
1: Thank you. This was some fun. It was fun.
0: And there you have it. A huge thank you to Allison and Kimmy for all of their work and for making the time to chat about it here on the pod. As I mentioned, the Romance for Reproductive Justice auction will be held online on June 10th and 11th. There is some incredible stuff available to bid on, including annotated copies of wonderful books, edits and critiques for those of you who are writers, and even tickets to some very cool upcoming events. You can find the link to the auction site at meetcutebookshop.com or you can go directly to 32auctions.com slash r4rj2023. I will drop that in the show notes. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it on the podcast listening platform of your choosing. It helps other people find us. And look, I know that you've been in training for this for years with all of the book reviews you've been writing. That's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.